and welcome back to Resonant Reels, where we talk about movies, TV, and sound and stuff. I'm Chandler, and I'm with my co-host... Adam. What's up? What's up? That was a bad lead-in. That's okay. That's okay. We're still learning. It's a very early morning recording for us, which is new, so we're, we're both kind of like waking up a little bit still. It's fine. It's also cold, so I feel like we're just trying to like warm ourselves up as well. My body absolutely wants to head into hibernation mode the second it gets cold out. So that's where that's where I'm existing currently. Well, today we are talking about war movies, right? I mean, these we have kind of some commonalities with these two more so than I initially thought, which was, you know, fun trivia. But yeah, both of our movies are centered around World War II because I mean that that definitely feels since like the twentieth, late twentieth century and twenty first century, like the main focus of the majority of war movies has been World War II, especially with Hollywood. But so I chose the two thousand film U five seven one, directed by Jonathan Masto, and I chose Midway from twenty nineteen, directed by Roland Emmerich. Yeah. Which one do you want to start with? Why don't you kick it off? We can talk about yours first. Chandler has already expressed he's had some feelings about these movies, so I'm interested to see what he has to say. So so I I very much knew of U571 because I watched it as a kid. So so I very much like, you know, have this nostalgia, I guess, for lack of a better word, or, you know, memory of it. And man, the memory was a lot better than when I rewatched it this time, sadly. (laughs) But like also crazy ridiculous when I was just like, you know, just doing some research on it. Just how many random just famous people are in this movie? Yes. And they're only there for like the first 15 minutes and then you don't see them again. It's it's insane. Or I should say like first 25, I guess, because, you know, our first 10 minutes of the movie were focused on a Nazi U-boat. And we get to see like a Nazi U-boat operation, which is like really intense. So essentially this this movie is is a fabrication, but it's inspired by true events, which has some criticism, which we can get into later. But the idea of it is a American sub disguises themselves as a Nazi U-boat resupply in order to infiltrate a a wounded u-boat and their crew to steal an enigma machine which you know this cleverly ties into last week's episode throwback to imitation game we have a star-studded cast i mean it's i mean it's got a lot of people who who are in a lot of war movies kind of thing but also we've got a young matthew mcconaughey you know so it's like a young hotshot here we also got, you know, the legendary rest in peace, Bill Paxton. And then John Bon Jovi shows up for like 30 seconds, which is crazy to think about. Like, that's that's the third name I wrote down because I was just like, wait, is that who I think it is? And like, I immediately like Googled it and I was like, no way. W- what is he doing in movies? That's the one who got me. I was like, what is happening right now? Yeah, because this was a first time watch for me. So I had no... I had no preface to this film, so no no childhood memories to be sadly tainted. Uh, <laughs> I mean, what what did hold up from my memory is the sound design. Like the sound alone is so well crafted throughout this movie. It it really captures like the intensity of being an underwater submarine crew in an active war zone. 
it's it's crazy intense and it's so well done so well done that they won an oscar for best sound editing which is no longer a category because it's now all merged into just best sound in the oscars which is a whole whole thing of how the sound keeps getting losing different titles in the Oscars and it's just merged into just one big old category it feels like or just anywhere throw back to the Tonys can you hear me now yeah exactly it's going to be like a brief synopsis cuz it's just like the it's like a usual fabricated war film where it's just like we got this one big problem and we hit other problems along the way in order to try to get to safety with the allies. Like that's that's pretty much essentially what this movie is, which is some crazy intensity of scale of danger along the way. So we start out following a Nazi U-boat crew. They attack what we believe is a passenger ship, which we do later learn was a passenger ship. That, that was the big common thing in the Atlantic during World War II was a lot of attacks on any sort of ships in the Atlantic because they didn't know if they were passenger or supply ships. You know, they're trying to stop any supplies getting to the UK so the Nazis, Germany, can continue their campaign through Europe and in their eyes eventually try to invade the UK. So we follow this crew and they, they sink a ship but then they realize that there's a allied battleship and so they go into like crazy maneuver moments and they get really rocked by a lot of depth charges to the point they lose their whole mechanical crew one whole side of their engines is out and they're running on reserve power and so they're really in dire states and so the the captain decides to radio to Berlin their coordinates for assistance and resupply because they literally can't repair. They're like dead in the water. So it's a very like risky situation for them. For if you ever wanted to feel bad for Nazis once, but you know, it's not worth it for what they do literally 30 minutes later where they shoot a bunch of civilians. So it really shows how monstrous they are. I think it really does well in showing that it's the captain who's truly the monster because, you know, the crew questioned some of the evil that were committed, but he's like, we got to follow the fearer's orders. We're no witnesses. We can't take on civilians. We kill everyone who's seen us kind of thing, which is evil and dark. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting choice that was made to have the crew question some of that slightly. Yeah, I it it just added it just added a, a layer in the narrative, but I mean ultimately they did what they did. They followed through, so you know the questioning didn't didn't go anywhere. I mean, we also get the flip side of that with later in the movie with a lot of the U.S. crew after shit hits the fan of questioning leadership and orders and stuff like that. So it's good to see a little bit from like the bad side early, but then like we get it in a different nuanced way with the good side. I do, I'm doing air quotes anyways, because I think, you know, just in general, war is just inherently evil in general to me. Good versus bad. I know we're, yes, in, in World War II, it's very easier to draw that line, but also at the same time, just the amount of lives lost is just hard. So yeah, so then we hop back to an American base, I think, where we're at a port or something. A bunch of guys are on leave. It's a leave party. Uh, it gets shortly interrupted. Um, as they have to quickly get on board their newly redesigned submarine that's made to look like a Nazi U-boat. And everyone's like, what the hell is going on? Well, we also get some 
some understanding into our lead character, Matthew McConaughey, Lieutenant Andrew Tyler. He he applied to be a captain of his own crew, uh, a commander, I guess, sorry, a lieutenant commander of his own crew, but was denied that promotion. And he knows it's the only way that would have happened is if his commanding officer didn't submit a recommendation, which he didn't, which is Bill Paxton as Lieutenant Commander Mike Dahlgren. People are like loading up supplies and stuff, not knowing what this covert mission is. And even uh, Matthew McConaughey's character, which I'm just going to keep referring to him as Matthew McConaughey, because that's what he is to me now, because he's just Matthew McConaughey. He's just always Matthew McConaughey. And he doesn't get like any information or anything. And he's, and he's just like, he's very wary of it all. And like, we get a new officer who's joining, who's clearly not like, bit. he's from Naval Intelligence, I think. And he's just, everyone's like, he's in charge. He's going to ride with you boys, do what he says and make, you know, just take care of him. And then we get this like really weird covert guy who wears all black and stuff who just shows up with a truck and is like, yo, is this the place to unload? He's like, yeah, pull it up over there and then go unload it yourself. He's like, nah, your orders is go talk to so-and-so in charge, unload it for me and be careful. And it's just like highly explosive stuff. And it's just like, what is going on? There's a lot of, there's a lot of the, the like Hollywood, you know, drama uh just in in the first in the first half hour i mean the whole movie but specifically when that guy comes on i'm like okay like (laughs) and during this because they're on like a a shipyard kind of thing and so like you know you got crew who's like upset that their leave got cut short because you know a guy was about to like get married and Hiller, you know was like trying to spend time with his woman and you know everyone was like wanting to drink and stuff and so everyone's like in this like theory of like why are we doing this? What's going on? We're not getting any answers. And this is where we also get all the cameos. John Bon Jovi shows up and he's like, yo, I'm sorry. I heard about you didn't get your promotion. Cause he's like best friends with Matthew McConaughey, his character in this. Cause they went to, they went to um, Annapolis together at Naval Academy school, which is a throwback to your movie last week with Annapolis and the Naval, the Naval Academy. So yeah, everyone kind of loads up and 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 they go and then there's oh we also get sorry before this while they like talk to the new guy who's joining who's in charge tyler has to find some guy i think it's trigger i think his name is trigger there's a lot of names in this and it's really hard to keep them straight because it's just shit hits the fan and it's just action and the, and it, the movie very much focuses on like a few key characters and and that seems to be it anyways he brings one of the crewmen over uh, because he speaks german and it's gonna be useful and so this brings up more questions it also brings up the the common thing that happened with a lot of you know armed services of americans of those who spoke german did get a lot of hate from other core members and stuff like that so it brings up that tension but, you know, he ends up saving everyone's fucking asses because Covert Man in Charge is a fucking flake boy. Hershey's our guy in charge of this covert mission. So they learn after they get underway and they start sailing out to sea that they are on an intercept course and it's a race to try to get to the German sub so they can infiltrate, grab the Enigma machine uh, to bring it to the Allies to help break the Enigma machine. 
and it, and you know there's a lot of questions of like well my crew aren't marines how do you expect us to do this and the guys like I'll train them it'll be fine this will be easy quick and they they won't expect it because they're not marines either and like this is all going quick like we're not even like half hours into the movie before like we meet the german sub it's kind of crazy how fast it goes but then also like we also see the this american sub how scrappy and old it is and there's lots of comments of like she may be old but she'll get us there and it's just like there's like there's leaks coming from the ceiling and everywhere and it's just like this is no it's just a bad idea this is no like no this is no this is not okay it's the good old american way you know like (laughs) but it's like also like semi-accurate because like we we also see some of it in Midway where it's just like, repair it with whatever you got. We got to get this thing out in, you know, 24 hours. And it's just like, what were we thinking? I, I mean, I know we weren't all, we weren't the most advanced in most of World War II. I know this. Hence, that's why, like, we put so much funding into our military sense. That's an interesting commentary that we could go so much deeper on. Anyways. So they, they get to the German sub and they're, they they leave a good distance so Lieutenant Commander Dahlgren can fire on the sub if he needs to out of, you know, safety of the rest of the crew. And so Tyler with these new covert guys and the crew, they go into par- two parties on two boats to paddle over to the U-boat to fake them out with supplies and stuff. It's it's intense because it, it's a far enough distance and it's raining and you got the noise of the ocean. So like the sound design really captures like how hard it is to hear helps the Americans in their favor initially because the the captain of the German U-boat is calling out to them and he's like asking them if they have any mechanics, wondering why he's not getting a reply. And it's like on Hirsch to like speak back and he like starts freezing up and he's like panicking he's like reaching for his gun and like Tyler's like yo cool it we're fine just answer them and it gets so intense that the the sailor crewman who can speak German ends up just like taking control knowing like we're gonna get we're we're fucked if we don't reply and starts going off and then it's, it's this whole crazy thing and then Hirsch gets like really crazy into it out of like panic and stuff and it's just like maybe you're going too far maybe you're going too far it's the method acting that immediately took over like the anxiety just got channeled and he like dove head first it was insane and so it's just like okay maybe we got through it but then also it was a big thing from the other covert guy that both boats need to be tied up before anyone leaves their raft to get onto the U-boat. And then that's kind of what signals it to the German captain that, like, something is wrong. And then shit immediately hits the fan. Bunch of shooting and stuff like that, but it stays all on the German sub kind of thing. American subs just sitting there in the water being chill. Literally just hanging out. Yeah, it, it like nothing happened. So they end up getting a, an Enigma machine. I mean, a bunch of Germans get killed in all of this, but like it don't matter because it's a war movie with on the side of the Americans. And then a lot get captured as prisoners. So they start transferring prisoners over to the American sub. And it's funny because there's one black man in the whole crew on the Allied sub. And of course he's the cook because... That, that is a very 
known thing during World War II is just a lot of African Americans didn't get to be in a more helpful capacity of that could use their skills and abilities. A lot of them were like cooks and such. I mean, there's the exception of the Tuskegee Airmen because, you know, they pushed to have their own air, air unit, but there's not many platoons or squads or anything throughout most of the American military at this time that had African-Americans handling weaponry, which, you know, is is a frustrating thing. I am. I would be curious to know, like, when things became all hands on deck, like what that looked like, because like my grandpa was a cook in the Navy in World War Two, but also when we cleaned out his house, we absolutely found out found a empty like ammo shell from like one of the ship guns uh, that and like he had stories of like, yeah, it was all hands on deck. Like we shot down Japanese planes and things like that. Like no matter who, like what your assigned like position was and stuff. So they end up getting the Enigma machine and a bunch of the papers and they they've pulled the papers out of the uh, bilge. So they have to dry it off because the ink's running and stuff like that. But it ends up being success. Um, oh, yeah, because I was going to really, the, the one African-American in this whole movie is like writing numbers on the German prisoners. And he has some good quips at them about like, oh, this time, is this the first time you're seeing a black man? We'll get used to it and stuff like that, which is like really good. So then we see them just kind of like everyone who's still on the German U-boat kind of just, you know, searching for any last bit of uh, information and stuff like that. And then they set the U-boat to explode because they have all this explosive material because they want to make it look like the U-boat sank. So they don't have suspicion because the whole big thing is like they can't know we were here. Because if they know, then they'll change the Enigma machine and stop using it. So as they're like getting ready to sabotage everything, shit hits the fan because there's another German U-boat that fires onto the American submarine and explodes it and like it's insane like everyone's the you know people are dying everywhere shit hits the fan and it's like full panic mode so the skeleton crew that is still nearby the german u-boat decide to use it for whatever condition it is in to try to battle this other u-boat and they managed to be successful but it's like this really intense situation of like fuck 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 and there's a lot and, and bill paxton's character lieutenant commander dahlgren he he's badly injured and he tells Tyler that like to take the sub down to dive and that he's in command now knowing he's he's not going to live from this because he looks in terrible shape during this so Tyler you know gets his wish to command his own sub but it's intense because everything's in German and they only have two translators and so people are panicking like crazy it's insane People are just like screaming. I'm like, I don't know where anything is. I can't read any of this. And and like Tyler's just like, go the, go to the engine room, go to the torpedo room. We need torpedoes. And it's just intense and crazy and insane. But you know, Americans win. They 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 end up successful in this battle. And then they surface to try to find any survivors. We get our good. We get. They save the cook. He survived. They also still have a German prisoner, which none of them know and ever find out that he's the captain. Like, the German captain survives through most of this. And, like, they never know it because he... he, They haven't, like, really interrogated him or anything or tortured him to get 
much information because it's just they had to be quick and just survive and get in and out as quick as possible. And now shit hits the fan. So it's like, try to get to allied water to get allied air support to save our asses. Yeah, they really don't know like who they're sitting with this whole time, which is which is crazy. When they ask him, like, what was your position? What was your job? He lies that he's an electrician. So they throw him into, like, the engine room, which is, like, a terrible idea. Because he clearly knows how he's going to sabotage the sub, which does happen later. So then it's just a lot of, like, lack of confidence into new leadership. The situation's gone to shit. People just want to, like, radio a mayday. But it's just, like, no one can know that they're here, that they're on a German sub, that they have an Enigma machine. This is all has to be as covert as possible for the sake of trying to defeat Germany in this war. And so there's a lot of the, what, the very skeleton crew that is left of questioning Tyler's leadership. Tyler does go, I don't know. And as a commanding, a newly appointed commanding officer, that's really not good morale boosting. Uh, so the chief gunner is kind of like one of the, he's like in charge of like a whole department in the sub. He makes sure like thing, shit gets done a lot is what we kind of see in this. So the chief gunner says it to him straight. And this is a guy who's got experience from World War One apparently and in the early subs in World War One, which is kind of crazy. And he lets him know straight that like, you cannot have any lack of confidence because saying I don't know is the death to your crew because you lose them. You have to, even if you don't know, you have to have some sort of plan of action. You have to be able to make some sort of decision because any in indecisiveness will kill this crew, which is like, you know, understandably very real in truth right there. I don't know how realistic it is because it just kind of gets ridiculous to me of just the situation they keep finding themselves in because they they have to surface again because they like they're running on just like barely any battery power it was already in bad shape and now they're in worse shape so yeah exactly so the one mechanic they have of theirs on board is trying to fix it and he ends up doing like a pretty successful job that they can start moving but then they get spotted by a German plane who they find out is doing a scouting recon for a destroyer, which is like, great, fantastic. And it's and it has this really intense moment that's really good because it really amps up the stakes, especially the, the relationship of the crew with Tyler as the new commanding officer. They're, they're on topside and they're at the, uh, the gun just in case the plane decides to shoot at them. But Tyler's like, no, they think we're German. Don't do anything. And one of the crew is just like, no, he's coming in for an attack run. Shoot him now. Shoot him now. And Tyler's like, shut the fuck up. Don't do it. Like, stand the fuck down. And luckily, no one shoots at the plane, so they're okay. But then like, oh, turn around. There's a destroyer. Great. This ain't good. It literally was put together of like, phew, and then, oh, fuck. Like, back to back, a second apart. Like, plane, we're good. Oh, shit, there's a destroyer. So then Tyler commands to dive. And so they're trying to get everything ready to dive. So they have to get all the compartments ready because you got to pressurize different compartments of the sub so you can dive efficiently and fast and not have any leaks and problems and stuff like that. But the engine room is kind of fucked because our 
Nazi prisoner escapes and starts trying to... Our electrician, Yeah, right? our fake electrician. Yeah, kind of breaks out and he tries to... Uh, he kills one of them, kills one of the crew. Not our mechanic. He knocks our mechanic out, but another crew sees what happens and tries to stop him, but he ends up dying from a gunshot wound. But the Nazi also takes a gunshot wound, I think. Does he? I don't know. It's There's a lot of gunfiring that kind of happened, and I don't know who got hit and who didn't really in this moment. I just know he, he was like subdued basically i i didn't i couldn't actually tell if he got hit or not in the in the fire nazi gets captured again and tyler's like i want because it's a whole panic mode because he's just like we can't dive and this is intense and they're now this destroyer is sending a boat over to check us out to make sure we're okay because they probably know we are the injured sub and so they're like oh hey we found them let's go help resupply them because we haven't heard from the other u-boat if their mission was successful or not they've gone mia so they end up restraining the our our german captain in the bunks now and tyler's like tie him up both hands and feet i don't want him getting loose ever again and so then he has to go back topside and deal with these guys coming on the boat i don't know how realistic it is of just you know, get on the AA gun of the sub to fire at the comms of the destroyer so they can't radio us. I can't possibly imagine that it is accurate, but I love the Hollywood flair. Yeah, it's like, oh, Tyler's making making Matthew McConaughey's character very smart and, you know, making him a better leader. Because it's very much like, we're going to watch this person learn to become a better leader in the worst situation ever. So he has the idea of like, we'll shoot out their communication so they can't radio that we've infiltrated. And then we can try to get away and hopefully we could get to ally airspace protection before they can get in contact with anyone to try and stop us. So they kind of do the plan as like the rowboat gets there and then Tyler's like, what, what do you say in German to tell them to go the fuck away? And so they start, like, shouting back at them. And then that's where, like, this German naval crew are like, oh, something's off here. And then they just see these guys come out with this big-ass gun, get it ready to fire a cannon shot at the destroyer. And they're like, oh, no. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. And so, like, it's immediately, like, you turn going back. And it's just an intense situation of them, like, you know, like, firing. They end up blowing the comms station they're able to dive again but then it's just like oh we're gonna dive super deep like they go beneath the destroyer which was crazy we're gonna dive super deep try and get right under it like they like barely almost scraped the bottom of the destroyer there's a lot of metal scratching on metal throughout because earlier in the sub battle a torpedo scraped alongside of their sub and i was just like this is ridiculous. It's so Hollywood. I I mean, it's probably happened. Like, I'm not going to say it didn't happen, but like, let's have the most ridiculous things happen every single time in this movie. It probably happened once in the entirety of World War II. So they, they managed to die. And but then Tyler's like, I want to go to 160 meters, which is like 600 feet, right? 600 feet. Yeah. They, do they want to go below 600 feet? Which is the funny thing of like, everything's in meters. I don't know how deep we're going. So it panics like everyone, but it's just like, you know, the red marks are still in the same place. So like, don't go to the red. And I think we're fine. But they're pushing the limits because I mean, there was a story earlier about how 
for for girls and stuff like that. A guy uses a story about how a sub went to 600 feet and the sub imploded due to pressure kind of thing, which is like a real thing. When they drop that low, they start getting like water pressure damage. Rivets and stuff start breaking through and they're getting leaks and stuff and it causes a lot of panic. But Tyler's got this great idea of like dive that low because they're, they're running low on power and stuff anyways so that they can resurface enough so they can first dodge all the depth charges and then he he comes up with a plan which i don't know how it all works anyways because i'm like how do you circle around whatever i don't care it's hollywood but he's like we can resurface and then we can fire a torpedo at them before they notice it's us but we also want to fake that they actually hit hit us with depth charges so they shoot their dead crew member and a bunch of you know debris and stuff out of one of the torpedo tubes at at a perfect timing kind of thing i guess to cause the destroyer to circle back around to investigate which will allow them to resurface at the right place to then fire a torpedo on them so you know they do this lots of intensity and stuff i mean there's also the big depth charge scene which brilliant sound design of just it gets quiet and you just hear the beeps of the radar and i'm just like this is what I remember as a kid. This intensity, this holds up really well. This is good. Okay, so that scene still did it for you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, it did for me. It did for me. I think I just had issues with a lot of the characters and the Hollywood-ifiedness of it all. And I'm just like, I'm tired of this in my war movies, I guess. So they get rocked a little bit by the death charges, but then it allows them to cover, do their kind of like cover story to try to fake them out. And then they managed to resurface and shoot a torpedo, and they managed to sink the destroyer. And they're like, yay! But now we're out of all fuel, and our batteries are pretty much practically dead. So then they abandon ship into a raft, and then they just hope that they get seen and spotted. And it's just like this like awkward, just like, we're just sitting here in the ocean. And then they see a plane, and then it movie ends. and it And the movie does give recognition to the real men who sacrifice who, who sacrificed their lives in capturing i think it was like 38 enigma and other code breaking machines throughout world war ii in these naval covert operations i think it's somewhere around there is the total that i looked up but i could be wrong they, they specify just a couple of them and they actually specify that it was mainly the british who did this so this is a very americanized lens of that and that comes with some of the criticism of this movie especially british historians because the british were known to do this the most americans have two accounts of doing this compared to britain doing it like 20 some odd times so there's a lot of criticism there of just like oh you these people are making it seem like the americans help crack the enigma code and saved world war ii how how very american of you which is an understandable criticism i feel so what do you think of the film i enjoyed it i would say that oh man i think that there are different categories and bear with me when i talk about my movie i'll, I'll get to it a little bit more but like of war world war ii films and for me this one is very just like action based like it's not even necessarily like heavy patriotism or nationalism of the US like it's just very like action like what are like we got to we got to fuck up the germans but it's just coming from like a 
I want to blow shit up standpoint is kind of how it feels is like the, the vibe of this film for me. And that is not my truth, personally. Like I like a little bit more substance uh, than just, you know, one problem, one problem, one problem in Allied Waters, we did it, we got saved, you know. So I mean, and, and also, I think just like, you could watch this and totally know that there were a lot of historical inaccuracies without actually knowing what any of them are. But for just being what it is, it's a, it's an action war movie. And I think I think I agree completely the sound design of this film makes it for me. It was so beautifully edited, which is why it won an Oscar, uh, because it, it is so, so well done. And I, and I like when there is a, a narrative where like sound can be played with and manipulated in, you know, unique ways. And obviously, when you're dealing with submarines and being 600 feet underwater, and, and bombs are, you know, exploding and things like there's a lot of playroom there. And so I think that I had I had more fun, I think, listening to the movie than I necessarily did like being uh, involved in the narrative of the movie. I, I could totally see that. Like, there's also something to be said of like how much silence there is in this movie and how well it's crafted within the sound design, because sound design is not only the use of sound, but also the use of silence. Right. And they captured that really well to ratchet the intensity and the stress of every situation, which I think is really well done. Also, this has been the notorious movie for sound systems. If you had like a really good sound system and stuff like you would put this movie on because of the bass effect. It was just so like you feel it because I know that was like a big comment in like seeing it in theaters which is why everyone raved about it because it's just like no one's done this to this scale before to like really feel the impact of like depth charges around you through the subwoofers and the bass. So it's just, it, it it's all, it used to be like, oh, I got a new sound system. I'm going to put this movie on to test it out. I'm going to put U571 on. Interesting. Some other tidbits and stuff. So the production value of this movie is also insane because they fully built this submarine like an actual working they built it. submarine yes they built it like replica because there weren't any more at any u.s bases of like world war ii era submarines because they just decommissioned most of them because most of them were just falling apart and stuff so they're like we'll just scrap it from for material so they're like we'll put you know, I forgot how much money they put into it, but they're like, we'll just build our own. So we can put it in, at the time, one of the world's biggest filming pools, which now has gotten bigger because it's, you know, everyone's beat that record by now because of Pirates of the Caribbean with them making it bigger. It's like the same place wherever it is on the East Coast where they go film all the big ocean sequences for big movies and stuff. This is one of the movies that, like, made that happen and had the biggest rain effect system at the time and and it was just like might as well just have a real sub so you can film these outdoor scenes accurately at night and make people feel it with you know making wait like they had wave machines and everything too just to make it realistic and it's just like damn hollywood got that money sometimes you know especially when it's war movies because people throw money to make a war movie happen 
this sub has also been used in other films since then because of just the accuracy of it. So I think its most famous use was in the movie Ghost Ship because it's just like, oh, Hollywood owns the submarine. Might as well use it in a bunch of other productions because we have it. Because it's, it's not useful as a real submarine, I have to say, because it's just like it can't do everything. But like it could dive a little. It can, you know, move around a little bit, but like it, it can't do a lot. <laughs> but there's a lot of cool. You can find it all over YouTube. A lot of the behind the scenes from like the DVDs that people have like kind of ripped and uploaded. I kind of like dive into the production side of it and like how crazy set decoration is and like how they were able to because they also had like sound stages sets for this but like they utilize the replica of the submarine to help build the sound stages because they keep accuracy and everything correct and it's like crazy like how much it was like we had to make it really efficient for us so like when we had to like film on the german sub we have to be able to like switch out all of the instruments and stuff quickly because they're all in german of course so we can be able to film the german scene super quick but then if we needed to like go back to the American sub, we can switch them out quickly and only take a couple hours instead of like a full day and make it a next day thing. And I'm just like, this is insane. This is like a theater production in a nutshell, almost. Literally. Also, I misspoke earlier. Their nomination, though, for Best Sound, they lost to Gladiator. So they won Best Sound Editing, but they lost Best Sound to Gladiator. Right. That's what it was. And I was like, oh, well, I mean, I got... They won something because it's a really good sound design. I, I would argue better than Gladiator, but I don't know what they were judging sound on back then because clearly it don't matter anymore because it's all one thing. doesn't matter at all anymore. Sad face. And then, of course, I talked about some of the controversy and criticism. Like, to the point, like, a lot of people in the UK were upset to the point that the Prime Minister, Tony Blair at the time, made a comment about it, that he agreed that the sentiment of forgetting the British lives lost in action was horrible. Oh, shit. Yeah, there's like an uproar because a lot of biggest one of the biggest quotes I found was like, you're rewriting history to glorify Americans over everyone else. So there's a lot of hate with this movie. It is disrespectful. It's very disrespectful to the British. That's facts. One of the co-writers on this, he's he's a famous screenwriter now but he was like third screenwriter on this movie so he's kind of there to be like on set and stuff i feel like um david ayer he he has now said that it did distort history and that he would never do it again as it offended the true heroes and their achievements and he has you know reflected that in his work so because he did the movie like fury with uh shia labeouf and stuff like that and he he mainly came out with that statement because he was like i have family who were in the military and they would be upset. And I've I've realized that as a young man, I made a mistake then that I will never do again. So it's like some people have learned from this. Well, I'm seeing I I because I looked up because I'm I as I mentioned in our last episode, I'm I'm like a history nerd, and so I love knowing actual facts. So apparently, the real U five seven one first of all was hit by depth charges from an Australian Air Force squadron. And then it was reported that everybody pretty much managed to escape from the ship, but they all died from hypothermia instead. 
And then the real USS uh, S-33 was just stationed in the Pacific Ocean and then sold for scrap, never did anything. And then the real destroyer, German destroyer, was ordered, but not ever completed or sailed. Yep, they just found names of ships that seemed good for writing. They were like, perfect, this is dope. The beginning of the movie makes you feel like this is based off of like some sort of true story and stuff like that. And it's not until like literally the end of the movie where they're like, this is an inspiration tale that we've just told you. We want to give real recognition in these paragraphs that we're going to leave you. I feel like that's a lot of war movies, though, is like they try to convince you that it's a it's a an account versus like an inspirational tale, which maybe is a, a good segue into mine. So with Midway, it's a little different because it actually does start off by saying that this is based on actual events, not inspired by, um, which I think that that use of of the word there is is important. Also a weirdly star-studded cast. And I would just like to notate some of the highlights here. So our, our main guy, Dick Best, is Ed Screen. We've got Patrick Wilson, Woody Harrelson, Mandy Moore, Dennis Quaid, Nick Jonas is in this movie. Like there it is it is a weird fun group and and Darren Chris shout out I guess like is also in this film a fascinating fascinating group of actors that I okay so what Chandler told me prior to us starting was that he was bored by this movie um so I'm only slightly offended because I I I actually like it. I enjoyed this movie a lot. This is my second time watching it. I I can see the it was, okay. Okay, just to try to defend myself a little bit. Okay. Also to add for the cast thing, uh both of our movies share an actor, uh Jake Weber, cuz he he played Hirsch in my movie and then he plays a naval commander in yours. He replaces um yeah, that's Dennis Quaid's character. Which is funny just to see him there in this very different role. <laughs> All right, to defend myself. So I've seen a lot of war movies about the battle in the Pacific. A lot. Especially concerning like stuff around Midway, stuff about Midway. And to me, nothing has ever compared to Tora, Tora, Tora. Like that movie to me is the best of any World War II Pacific-based movie. I mean, not only because of its production history about how it was one of the first movies since World War II that had a joint Japanese film team and American film team working together to make this crazy epic masterpiece of a movie. Sadly, everything compares to this movie to Tora 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 for me when it comes to anything Pacific-based. So this one was... So Midway was just like... Yeah, it's just got really cool updated VFX. Great. <laughs> okay, that's that's fair. I, that's fair. I can uh, I, your explanation of yourself is understood. So I guess right off the bat, like what I because again, uh, historical accuracy I think is important when we talk about these things. Is that even though obviously this is a very like flashy, you know artistic license was definitely taken and run with kind of film um, in terms of the shots and things. The director 
and co-producer were stated as having been like both really adamant about historical accuracy for this film to the point where in its release um, there were a lot of combat veterans and historians that praised the film for being more accurate about Midway and Pearl Harbor than like other movies had been specifically that Midway was you know more accurate than Pearl Harbor, the movie, 2001. Uh, <laughs> and also the other Midway movie from like the... From 1970s or whatever. Yeah. I thought that that was good. And and one of the one of the things that they talk about um, is a specific scene. So I'll, I'll get into that. Um, which I... Because the only artistic liberty that was taken, I think, is actually very funny that they chose to go a more serious route than what actually happened. So this movie starts off First of all, over our um, Lionsgate Summit Entertainment montage thing that they have in the beginning for themselves, we are getting the actual radio broadcast from the president over top. So this is pre this is pre um, Pearl Harbor. So what we're listening to is essentially just a, a report of like the increasing tension of the war, basically, that's happening. What I think is like cool is that a basic our, our main character is basically this guy his name's dick best we don't actually meet him for the first like 10 minutes of the movie maybe like 15 minutes of the movie because we meet uh first of all we get this guy he's lieutenant commander Layton, um and he is specifically involved with like naval intelligence and he is in a meeting with the Japanese Admiral Yamamoto. One of the things I really like about this movie are the purely like Japanese scenes that we get that are interspersed kind of throughout all of this like rah-rah American kind of stuff that, that's happening. And this meeting is, again, this is pre Pearl Harbor. And so this meeting is about Yamamoto talking about like most of Japan's oil is imported. And if the US were to like do anything that would like cut off their oil supply or threaten their oil supply, then Japan would have no other choice than to like engage in the war. Leighton tells like he relates that he's like, Japan is going to get involved. And that is like kind of like a, a, a big thing he like kind of puts out this warning and nobody listens to him and then we jump to this four years later that the u.s decided to cut off japan's oil supply and that is when japan launched the surprise attack on pearl harbor and that is what forced the u.s into officially entering the war i think that like what is really well done for me in the beginning of this movie is in the pearl harbor attack scene yes we have shots right of of navy men like on the boats and everything but we also have this really beautiful shot of a i think it's i think it is we don't meet best yet but it's of i think best's wife and kid i think or it's just uh just but a, a wife and daughter and it is it is classic suburbia it is like white picket fence backyard lush green grass like daughter playing outside alone with mom like cooking yeah you know in the kitchen and making lemonade and like looking out the window and it's just this child staring out across like the ocean and seeing pearl harbor in flames 
and like the planes coming in and bombing and shooting and like the mom coming out and being like, we need to get in the house, like, come here, come here. And for me really like hit that understanding of like that again, we're not separate from terrorist attacks because it's, it's different. That was the only time that like, a, in it revolving a war that there had been an attack on like U.S. soil, and the the amount of like shock that came from that, I just felt like that was so well done in that one moment of just having this kid watch this utter flames and destruction. It's beautiful to see that. Like, I think it's well done and everything, but like, there there has to be a sense of privilege as Americans to be said that that is the only time on our soil we saw it versus the terribleness that happened throughout China, Japan, Europe, the UK, uh, North Africa, parts of North Africa. Like, we we saw a tiny fraction compared to what the rest of the world saw in World War II. And it also doesn't help that we saw none of it in World World War One, when Europe got completely changed geographically from that war. And I think, like, especially watching it right now at a, a few different points, obviously there are there is the Ukraine-Russian war that's happening. There is the, the war between Israel and Palestine. There is, like our our entire engagement in the middle east and everything that's happened since 2001 like watching this movie again or just like really sitting down and watching it this time because the first time i watched it i was very just like a movie and this time i you know i was actually like watching it and it i felt deep feelings like i had i had a lot of just feelings about this movie and war and all of that and and 100 percent the privilege of the u.s that that was, you know, to this date in an actual war has been the only time that, that there was something that happened on U.S. soil. Yeah, excluding all of the previous wars throughout the, uh, what is it, 18th and 19th centuries that have mainly been, you know, interior anyways against British and 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 the Civil War, of course. Sure, they were interior. Yeah, whatever. The, this is different. And also, like, planes didn't fucking exist and giant fucking bombs and shit. Yeah. Basically, uh, this this attack on Pearl Harbor led to um, us meeting our main character, Lieutenant Dick Best, Richard Dick Best, and the rest of the air group from the uh, carrier, the USS Enterprise. They get deployed uh, to go find, like, a Japanese carrier fleet um, that, that ha- held those planes. And there was a, a moment right before they get basically sent out that in that opening Pearl Harbor attack scene, we have an officer who is trying to help save this like young sailor, get him to safety and everything. And we find out that that guy, I believe his last name is Pierce, um, Officer Pierce, uh, was like Best's best friend. He winds up identifying the body due to a class ring that was the only thing about the body that could be identified because as the doctor pulled back the sheet it was just this charred black carcass and it was horrible and one of the things that i like that really hit me was they were at the funeral for pierce and 
Pierce's wife was talking to Best and his wife and says the statement, I'll see you at the next funeral. And it wasn't sarcastic. It wasn't anything. It was just a statement. And Best's wife was like, you don't have to go. And she's like, yes, I do. We're a family. I was like, Jesus, the fact that 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 was the mentality was just like, I'll see you at the next funeral because everybody is losing somebody. Like there were hundreds of people who died. Like I felt like it was a really powerful line to put in there from like a grieving wife who was now left with like children. So anyway, the and the USS Enterprise gets shipped off and they they are unable to find like the fleet. And this is also where we start seeing the personalities of these airmen uh, or well, they're Navy airmen, I should say. One thing that I liked about this film as well. So that I, that was not necessarily, I don't know how intentionally done it was, but I feel like it was a, it was a, a, a mood throughout the whole film that I was able to, to grab onto. I don't know if mood's the right word, but what I'm trying to say is like, these were kids like these guys are are young men and it's not necessarily that they're playing young like like i don't think these actors were given the direction of like you're a 22 year old with a wife and kid at home like blah blah, blah. but like there was something about the movie that just was heartbreaking knowing that like these guys were our age and younger like the you know they just they hopped in to this to this war and it explains why you know there were such fiery attitudes about revenge and like a almost like a a lack of um not a not a lack of care but like if i die i die it was you know some of them had that of like if i die at least i'm gonna go down like taking out a a Japanese fleet or whatever. And that wasn't all of them. You know, there were, there were characters who were concerned about getting home and things like that, but there were, there were, there were just dialogue moments and interactions that, that constantly reminded you like, yeah, these, these are kids. These are kids. I I also really liked the, which I felt like never gets talked a lot about during the early days of the U S getting involved in world, world war two is the the conflict in some of like the ranking officers and stuff initially of just playing politics still when like politics don't matter anymore after you know we've been attacked on our own soil from our own intelligence mistakes because like honestly which is now has been stated historically now by many historians and confirmed by the military that there was a lot of intelligence mistakes into preventing the devastation of Pearl Harbor. And so I, I really like that, like, even like within like the USS Enterprise between some of these airmen, there's like a lot of just like back and forth about pulling rank and being like, you can't tell me what to do. And it's like, don't be stupid, stupid. Like, because uh, I, I remember when they were going back to land on the Enterprise after trying to find the the carriers after the initial attacks on Pearl Harbor just to see if they can do a quick torpedo run on them. Uh, Best is like, okay, I'm going back. I'm dropping my smoke, and I'm going back to the Enterprise. You guys should go land at Pearl. 
And, and the guy's like, no, we're going to go land at the Enterprise. And he's like, why? Don't be too scared to go to Pearl. That's a stupid idea. You guys got a bunch of torpedoes on your planes. I don't want one of you to land awkwardly and blow us up, which like almost happens because someone lands, you know, funky and the torpedo slips out of its holder and slides across the deck of the Enterprise. And it's just like, stop playing dumb rank game and just be sensible and not try to get everyone killed like we're in a war now that we don't know when we'll see the end of like come on it it was a lot of it's a it's a lot of internal politics then uh we kind of have a a cut to this scene after they after they the enterprise kind of fails to find these the japanese carrier fleet where yamamoto is talking to rear admiral yamaguchi and they're talking about their plan to like invade midway and they want to use these uh japanese carriers that they have but they get they they they're overruled by the japanese uh, army and that leads to the enterprise launching a raid against the marshall islands and this is where we get our um woody harrelson character um so he comes in He's having a conversation with, and I'm totally blanking on who he's talking to now. It's kind of, it's fine. But Harrelson plays Admiral Chester Nimitz. He is like talking to this guy and um, he would say, yeah, I'd, I, I don't feel sorry for the son of a bitch who has to take that job. And then there's dead silence. And he's like, I'm the son of a bitch with that job now. Basically, it's like what the dialogue is. Like as he realizes that he's being promoted to essentially the most difficult position in the U.S. Navy at the moment because he is now the one in charge to make all of these decisions. And Leighton, from the beginning, becomes his like right hand intelligence assistant and or you know intelligence officer. And because Nimitz goes like you knew about. Pearl Harbor before it happened and no one listened to you. And Leighton was like, yeah. And, and so they they kind of start working together and, and actually listening to each other, which was good. Nimitz says that they need to launch an immediate attack on Japan for a couple different reasons. Number one is uh, morale. And number two is to show Japan basically that like it's on. Like game on, you you can't let enough time pass between these things. So he says that he wants to launch an attack at uh, on the Marshall Islands, but that he wants to make sure that they're not like flying into a trap. And Leighton basically confirms that like they're they're good to go. So they do, and we get like just a the kind of the first sequence here of bombing and and the u.s uh kind of men really being like fuck you like we're we're here for our revenge sort of it's a good little clip and like we we have a few we have a few scenes like this where it's like there isn't necessarily anything uh narratively like great about those scenes it's just like they go somewhere there's a there's a bombing fighter jet scene and then they get back to their like carrier. And this is kind of one of them. This also, I believe, the Enterprise goes to the Marshall Islands, they start firing on Japanese ships, and they return to their carrier. But then what winds up happening is planes have returned from 
the Japanese side and have now started uh, firing at the uh, USS Enterprise. So they're trying to shoot down these planes and there is one basically that's left. And I believe it is Dennis Quaid's character, the Admiral, who goes, what the hell is that guy doing talking about a Japanese pilot? And one of them says, like, he's turning himself into a bomb, which was kind of our first reference to, like, the kamikaze pilots and stuff, which is never actually referenced at all in this movie outside of this, like, one little clip. But we get arguably who is... I think maybe my favorite character um, and his name is honestly, it's probably cause he's Italian shout out Paisan, but uh, his name is Bruno Gato Gaido. It's one of the two. I don't know. They usually just call him Bruno Bruno throughout the movie. So I will call him Bruno played by Nick Jonas. He shoots down. He like hops in a plane on the deck of the carrier, grabs the gun and just starts aggressively firing at this last plane to try to get it to go down before it can actually crash into the ship. And he is successful. And in the movie, they have Admiral Halsey, Dennis Quaid, immediately call him to the office and promote him. That is the one scene that is not technically historically accurate. He, um, Bruno, as a real human being, absolutely did hop into that plane and shoot down the other the Japanese plane none of that crazy what seems like very Hollywood-esque was fake that actually all very much happened the difference is that um, Bruno actually hid at the end because he was convinced that he was going to get in trouble so he went into hiding on the ship and people had to go looking for him to bring him to admiral halsey to get the promotion um and i think that it's very interesting that the real like the real story is that the dude was so scared shitless of his commander that he hid on a ship that is just it's like someone's obviously gonna find you um versus they went the more serious route of immediately just like getting him into the office and giving him a promotion pretty much like on the spot. So I thought that that was funny. So the next kind of like thing that we see after that is we get Lieutenant Colonel Doolittle and uh, that's, this is played by Aaron Eckhart, also a name. He is supposed to be taking his men because um, they are heading to Japan and they're supposed to be providing like bomber planes to, to, bomb tokyo so they start their they start like their air raids and they have to abandon their plane because they're they're running out of full of fuel um they can't make it back they drop and they wind up in japanese occupied territory in china and as they land there's a bunch of like chinese civilians who i mean the best word i i would use is like like when you talk about like guerrilla warfare that's kind of like these these Chinese civilians there, they've all got guns, but they're also very much clearly like agricultural people. And they have one guy there who speaks a little English who can help try to like translate between Doolittle because he literally in the scene is like standing in a circle of like 20 firearms being pointed at him, trying to explain that like he's, he's American, like he's fighting against the Japanese, whatever. And, Finally, they are able to like break that language barrier. And the one guy goes, you bombed Japan. He was like, hell yeah, I bombed Japan. And then the like 
the Chinese civilian guy like sticks out his hand and they like shake hands and they help Doolittle and the rest of his men escape because it is shortly after that that like Japanese uh, fighter pilots come through and like just start like trying to like shoot up the town and again some a line that I of dialogue that I thought was really interesting there was Colonel uh, Lieutenant Colonel Doolittle makes a, a statement of like what are they what are they what are what is their target here? And the guy who speaks a little bit of English is he's, he says people like people are the target, and I think that that was just another really powerful statement that kind of gave context to how dirty and and just horrible like this all war, but like this war is as well as just like that they were just aiming to kill people at this point. Which which has there's a lot of historical meaning behind that because at that time japan historically had been very much a puppet of china and so when they had the chance to really fight back against china it was no stopping like they did crazy heinous things because they saw it was okay that germany could do it to their eyes that they can be as horrible as germany and so it is that attack that actually leads the Japanese army to approve Yamamoto's initial pitch to like go and take Midway. So we're kind of seeing this interesting back and forth between the American and the Japanese governments of like, no, you can't do that. Something bad happens. Yes, go do that. On the other side, no, you can't do that. Oh, fuck, something bad happened. Yes, go do that. And so that it's it, it becomes kind of this interesting back and forth. Also, I want, I want to throw in stakes here. The, the Americans only have like two or three carriers because most of them got destroyed. Oh, yeah. Significantly at this point, significantly less uh, weaponry and like carriers, planes than than what Japan has. Planes are outdated, older. Japanese have they're much newer. They're more sophisticated. They they are higher tech. Because like this movie made me like do more research because I remember it, watching in Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor the P fifty one Mustang and then learning like that was inaccurate to have the P fifty one Mustang that early in the war and i was like oh because the p-51 mustang didn't happen until like like four years after pearl harbor the plane of world war ii when like americans invented that engineered that it, it very much like at this point like the americans were the underdogs of the, the the war that they're engaging in with with the japanese and we kind of see that in our our japanese admirals and like lieutenants um of kind of having this confidence they just have a, they have confidence and what we're seeing on the american side with those characters are we're seeing the drive like we're like we're seeing the the like the want so it was a, it, i i enjoyed those kind of dichotomies so then we kind of get this whole which i'll just kind of like lump into one thing is that our intelligence guy Layton starts to pick up on like these japanese messages and they keep referring to a place called af they're trying to figure out like what AF is eventually. And this is me kind of jumping around, but basically like they have a, they have a hunch that AF is, is midway, but they, they are unable to confirm it until Layton has the midway base do an uncoded radio message that is talking about how their water treatment system has like failed. And then 
Leighton's codebreakers intercept a Japanese message saying AF is having water problems. And that is what confirms for the Americans that AF is midway and like that that is where like the next like Japan's next target is. And so Leighton is able to give that confirmation to Nimitz further plans like what are like what the next moves are meanwhile kind of while that's happening best gets promoted to skipper so he has to start training all of the like rookies and literally right as that is about to happen they get saddled next to uh, another ship and they kind of watch it take off and there is it they're immediately like it's like lesson one they're about to sit down and he's like shit okay like here we go like everybody's basically gonna have to get on these planes it's kind of one of those filler-ish type scenes but helps give context of like the rookies couldn't even be trained because so much is happening all the time that we're basically just putting these young men into planes pretty much immediately we will skip to the this part which is uh we have the uss enterprise we have the uss hornet we have the uh, Yorktown, which Yorktown is just horribly damaged, like is is very beaten up. But Nimitz orders that all three of them basically prepare for battle in the next three days. But when the Yorktown arrives, like everybody just gets like pumped because every because it's just like okay, we've got another ship, like we've got we've got guys, we've got men, like here we go. As they prepare for that. Um, those are those three days kind of in between. And then the Japanese officially launches their attack on Midway. What I think is very funny is there's a um, there's a little interlude scene um, of a guy, the actor's name is uh, Jeffrey Blake, portraying the director, John Ford, literally running around with his crew to get footage of all of these planes and weapons and ships firing around him and the people are being like ford we gotta go like we cannot be here like we've we and he's literally like no no like we have to film this and then they're trying to be like that we won't be here to film like no one will be here to film this like we have to leave which i thought was a you know something fun to put in which i'm like oh hollywood like in the sense of like that is the epitome of you know hollywood thinking is is screw the danger we got to get the shot this is also this is also very famous filmmaker commander john ford like he he wanted to always capture the real action so he can show it to the american people like that it was a big thing for him and he would put himself in dangerous situations all the time to capture the cool shots and everything he was a very uh, adrenaline jockey i feel like he he risked his life a lot to film i mean it's it's very cool to have that stuff still archived on film so just crazy that he he did all that so then as this is happening the americans swoop in and they start following the japanese destroyer because that is an order that one of the guys, uh, one of the, his name's McCluskey, makes and he's like, follow the destroyer. It's going to head back to like the main fleet, basically, uh, for reinforcements. And so they do. And the U.S. like launches a torpedo at the battleship and they miss. Um, so something we have in common in our movies are, is a missing torpedo, just freaking barely. So meanwhile, while this is happening, like there's literally explosions outside and stuff. We have, it's, he's the, 
second Admiral Nagumo and Admiral Yamaguchi trying to plot another strike against the U.S. air carriers. And while that's happening, the pilots swoop in and start bombing the Japanese ships. They're like absolutely wiping them out. In the middle of that, Bruno's plane winds up in the water. Him and his pilot, who I don't think was named in the movie, but I did look it up, um, O'Flaherty, they manage to get in their life raft and they call in before they get out of their plane, like they call in the um, like their coordinates, basically their rough area. And unfortunately, they get excited because they see a ship coming. The line from O'Flaherty is, is it American or Japanese? And the next cut scene is they are on a Japanese ship. This is like, this is like the rough one for that always gets me but again shows age in that Bruno's standing there their hands are tied and uh, a guy talks to him in Japanese and there's a translator who like yells at him and he's like what is the name of your ship Bruno just shouts back cigarette and they give him one they give him a cigarette they light it he's got it in his mouth he's smoking it and he says you know I had a lot of friends at Pearl Harbor so and then he goes so why don't you just fuck off and like or something like that and and who i'm guessing is the admiral of that ship just gives like a toss and signal and they throw they throw bruno overboard and then as he kind of resurfaces you see that there's a a rope that was attached to him like from his hands being tied and then they drop an anchor um that is on the other end of that rope and that is how uh, he dies and you don't see the same thing happen to Flaherty, but the same thing happens to O'Flaherty was sad and depressing. So then we have the Japanese retaliation where they absolutely destroy Yorktown and basically like best gets the information that his squadron's pretty much gone, but that there's only one Japanese carrier left. And so he gets all these young guys he's like i know you're tired i know no one wants to do this but like there's one carrier left like we gotta we gotta go and they don't back talk they don't anything they just go out and they do it they wind up successfully sinking well not sinking but they wind up successfully destroying the final carrier and we get this scene that is very interesting and very like cultural of yamaguchi and nagumo staying behind on the ship uh, as it goes down and them evacuating kind of the rest of their men onto an, an, a nearby ship. And that moment is when we're getting these cutscenes of U.S. intelligence getting word that Japan has surrendered. I don't think it's surrendered. I think it's more defeated. They didn't surrender at that point because they get word that uh, one of the commanding officers... Or retreated. Yeah, I didn't yeah. mean surrendered. Sorry, sorry. Retreated. They got... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big difference. Big difference. That is when uh, they get word that, that the Japanese have retreated uh, from from Midway, from from everything. We then get, like, just the this, this scene of their... The boys get to come home. Like, they're... They, they, they did that. And uh, Best is in a wheelchair because in one of his final flights his oxygen tank got too hot and so the oxygen it, there's a it's like caustic something um but in anyway he inhaled it and it absolutely just wrecked his lungs um and so he would never be allowed to 
try again. And again, I really like the dialogue in this movie. His wife hugs him because she sees him in the wheelchair and has no idea like if he can walk or anything, but he stands up to hug her and she just goes like, Oh, thank God. And he, and she's like, what happened? And he tells her and he's like, they're never going to let me fly again. And she's like, well, you can learn to do something else. You have the rest of your life to figure it out. Like, I thought that that was a really beautiful line that was put in there as well. Like you have the rest of your life to figure it out. Be grateful that like you have the rest of your life because everybody else was pretty much like lost. I enjoyed this movie just generally for a lot of reasons, but I think the, it didn't feel like, again, it didn't. uh, So I would put your movie in like action World War II. I think there is like a very clear genre of like nationalism World War II movies. And then I think there are like, I don't know. I, I don't know what I would call them, but I feel like this falls into like a third category, which I was like, we see the patriotism of the characters, but we also see the fault of the U.S. government. And we see like the, like we, we get a scene where we see the humanity of some of the uh, lower level Japanese military men and like things like that. And we, we, we can feel the age of these characters being young men, young boys with families because that's just how it was at the time and i and i think that that like that vibe of all of those things coming together made me enjoy it on top of the fact that it is pretty historically accurate uh for like how things actually happened yeah it's it's a it's a very like human grounded historically accurate war film which i think i think there's like a movement to try to like get back there in recent years, but like we'll see because there war movies right now in Hollywood kind of like there's a, there there's becoming a lot more focus uh, at least in like the last you know ten years of things in the Middle East for us because there's there's enough time quote unquote has passed to you know start doing film about that whether it be critical or more patriotic. So it's it's hard to say, but like I, I feel like we're we might be in a shift in in the kind of war movies we're getting, but like it all just depends on directors and writers in charge. Because I know when I did some just light research on this, I know Emmerich was wanted to do this movie. This was like his dream movie to do, and and the studios wouldn't give him money to do it, so he just like funded it himself and made it happen, which is kind of crazy. But it also didn't perform well in the box office. So, like, maybe that was a smart business move for Hollywood. Yes, and, I mean, it it did better than was projected, but it still didn't do well, per se. Because it cost a lot. This movie, like, cost a lot. It's like $100 yeah, million. Yeah, uh, the production budget was $100 million. Yep. It is, to date, one of the most expensive independent films of all time. So, so I, I've watched this movie twice now because I, 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 my first watch, I, I stopped midway through because I got a little bored and tired, but I was also watching it late at night. And I just, this movie at times feels like it's a marathon. And, and so, and there's like agreement with some critics about that where it just, it feels like a movie that just keeps going with not a lot of, uh, not a lot of pull to keep you engaged enough because to me, the movie very much feels like 
oh, we have all these vignettes of stories loosely tied together on a string. Where it's like, yeah, we get to see some familiar characters throughout the movie and we're kind of focused on them, but like it's still very much an ensemble cast. And I never got like enough emotional connection personally to them. And I don't know if that's partially direction or the script, but it's also hard because it's just like um, there was a critic who was like, if they know their movie about Midway, it's it's okay, but nothing new or a new way of saying anything happened in this movie. It was just another retelling is what it felt like. And, that, and that's kind of how I feel with it. The movie also ended with the classic, like, I want to call it like the where are they now section, um, which uh, um, I took a picture of the one for Dick Best because I thought it very accurately summed up his character. And it said, won the Navy cross for his actions at Midway. He is one of only two pilots in history to hit multiple enemy carriers in a single day. The citation said his, quote, boldness, determination, and utter disregard of personal safety, unquote, helped turn the tide of the war in the Pacific. He never flew again. So that was like his little interlude thing. Um, There was another one that said that that was specifically honoring the Chinese citizens who were in the Japanese-occupied territories and acknowledged there were 250,000 Chinese who were murdered by the Japanese army for helping uh, Lieutenant Colonel Doolittle and his crew escape. So that was something that I did not realize that like that many people were punished for that action. Also, there was apparently the squadron met every single year, had like a reunion up until 2019 when the last person died. This movie released in 2019, so I thought that that was really interesting. And I also, uh, they were very smart with their release, which I'm sure helped with the projected profits because they released this over Veterans Day weekend. Yeah, this it's it's weird because this movie very much is like, on my second rewatch, I kind of broke down time of like, so how long are we focused on this versus other parts? And the first hour and 20 minutes is the lead up to the 40 minutes of Midway we get. And then we get a six minute, what I'm calling the epilogue, where we, because the epilogue is like, we start the epilogue where we get the like, where are they now? But it's also like interjected with scenes of dialogue to like continue finish the movie. And I'm just like, I thought it was close to the end. Like if I was someone not as invested into this, I would be just like out of my mind of like, how long does this movie go for? Like, is there another hour? Because you're tricking me with this where are they now epilogue so like i can see the criticism there because it's i mean some there are some people i think are a little too critical about this movie being like if you're not into the american military and stuff you'll be bored out of your mind and i'm i think that's less true maybe it was just that guy and there's few people that agree with him but like it i can i can see it be very much people who are very much in the military would like this movie a lot because of both its historical accuracy, but like it's very grounded to humanity. So I can I can definitely see that. Uh, I also dove into research on the VFX because initially a lot of the Pearl Harbor stuff to me felt too picturesque. I would agree with that. Some of it felt like 
oh, we're, we're actors on a minimal set with a bunch of green screen behind us. Especially, I mean, the um, the young sailor when his leg catches on fire. That was a moment where I was like, no, okay. Like, all right, <laughs> I've got my audience blinders on. And I just find it weird because I guess I, because there's been so many World War II films because we're like, almost a we're, we're 20 years shy or 10 year 15 year we're like 15 years shy of the start of world war ii there's been a lot of movies made on world war ii and so i have a lot of previous film watching using actual airplanes and ships like that and that just doesn't happen anymore because it's literally too expensive because it's antiques like they are antiques now so it's, it's hard because i'm just like this is all CG. Cool, cool, cool. This is extended CG. Cool, cool, cool. Th- this whole plane, which I was wish was a real plane, looks like a really good 3D model, but I wish it was real. Yeah. <laughs> so it's hard. It's hard for me because because I have I've seen like them use real planes for movies on World War II, and it looks so good and it's so grittier. So it's hard to like translate that when you're using a bunch of visual effects i mean even the newest top gun yeah. movie had real planes yeah so, <laughs> so it's very hard so i i dove in so scanline vfx big vfx house uh was one of the major uh vfx houses that did this um as well as pixmodo uh pixmodo has a history with emrich like they did stuff for like they did like every all of the backgrounds like location cg mod 3d modeling for 2012 like that epic and that's like a lot of 3d landscape modeling in that movie because that's it's the it's an apocalypse movie as well as like independence day resurgence and then uh scanline vfx is known for a lot of work in mcu game of thrones some of the star wars movies some of the newer star wars movies they're, they're like reputable uh, VFX houses, but like when, when I learned that, I was like, "Oh, it very much feels like a Marvel movie visually, style wise." I can see that. I can see where my brain was like, "Wait, why does this feel a little off and too pretty?" Because things felt too pretty at times, and not like Pearl Harbor to me did not feel as chaotic as like the stories of Pearl Harbor I know because it was just like it also felt too quick like I felt I only saw the first attack I didn't see the second attack because there's two uh air raids on Pearl Harbor and I was just like Pearl Harbor just went by in like less than seven minutes that's insane for a movie to do that so it just some of the VFX just felt too clean and not like gritty and destructive because like I'm used to seeing like depictions of Pearl Harbor and war films being very like messy and dirty and gross. And the the one thing I think Michael Bay got right with the 2001 Pearl Harbor was the the intensity of people trying to weld through the bottom of overturned ships to get people to escape and how tragic that was. I feel like this was just a one off line of dialogue in this movie which was just sad because it was like that's the majority of our lives lost was people trapped on boats drowning slowly so i just i i just feel like we we missed some of the emotional i think that's when i started i started you know separating myself out and being less engaged and immersed into the movie when they had a one-off dialogue line for that without like 
that was your emotional pull right there of just like make that more tragic make me invested more but you know maybe that was intentional direction wise to like try not to emotionally entangle your audience purposefully try not to manipulate so maybe so i could i can you know see that as a direction choice and i'm not trashing this movie like this movie is like it is well done there's a lot of great acting i think there's a lot of great dialogue i was much more invested in everything Leighton and like the information intelligence gathering and and the japanese side more like i really like seeing a lot of the yamamoto scenes those things were drawing me in and i wanted more of that but I was like, that's not going to be this movie fully because I know this movie is going to be a lot of action as well because people want to see the Battle of Midway and not the intense information gathering <laughs> side of it. I hear you. I hear you. You got anything else? I don't think so, man. I feel very I feel very prepared for the non-election season that's happening. I guess, yeah, I guess I'll do it for this episode. But next week, we are diving back into Breaking Bad finishing we're not even near finishing it my my good sir we are the season two is much longer no i just used the long i just used the wrong words but i was gonna say uh eight through ten uh is episodes yeah we're doing episodes eight through ten so it's we're kind of like hitting the beginning of the second half we get to be introduced to one of my favorite characters i'm gonna love it so much so I'm excited for that to see how you feel about this character. But yeah, anyways, that's that's been us with Resonant Reels. Please, you know, listen, like, follow, subscribe, all the good things. Leave us comments about what you want to hear more of, ideas for us topic-wise. Thanks for listening. I've been Adam. And I've been Chandler. Till next time. See ya. See ya.